Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. All of us have heard or used the term mansplaining. It's that thing that happens when a man explains something to you that he assumes you don't know, when maybe you do know what you're talking about because of your own lived experience or your professional expertise. And these interactions reveal that this man thinks that instead of being your peer, he is in the role of maybe your dad or your teacher or your boss or your ecclesiastical leader. The author Rebecca Solnit published an essay online in 2008 called Men Explain Things to Me, which went viral, and it's become a touchstone for feminist thinkers and for everyday women, and it now appears on many essential reading lists, which is why we're discussing it today. Uh, This essay is also famous because it inspired the coining of the term mansplain, although the essay doesn't actually say that word, and Solnit herself says she doesn't use it. And Solnit says she has mixed feelings about the word, and I do too. But before we talk more about the word mansplain and about this essay, Men Explain Things to Me, and some other essays in Solnit's anthology, I want to welcome back to the podcast Malia Morris. Hi, Malia. Hi, Amy. It's so good to have you back, Malia. Okay, the next step is to get to know the author of the text. So that's Rebecca Solnit. And Malia, will you tell us a little bit about her? Yes. Rebecca Solnit was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1961 to a Jewish father and Irish Catholic mother. When she was five years old, her family moved to Novato, California, where she grew up. She said of her childhood, I was a battered little kid. I grew up in a really violent house where everything feminine and female and my gender was hated. She enrolled in an alternative junior high in the public school system that took her through the 10th grade. And after that, she passed the general education development tests and skipped high school altogether. She enrolled in junior college, and then when she was 17, she went to study in Paris. She returned to California to finish her college education at San Francisco State University and then received a master's degree in journalism from the University of California, Berkeley, in 1984. She has been an independent writer since 1988 and has written many, many books and essays, including a memoir in 2020 entitled Recollections of My Non-Existence and has won several prestigious writing awards. Great. Thank you. Okay, well, let's dive into these essays. So the version that Malia and I read is Men Explain Things to Me as kind of the title of an anthology. So that's the the title essay is the main essay in the book, but then there were a few essays after that. But we'll start with that, that main title essay from which the title of the book is derived. And Solnit starts out that essay with a story. So let's just start there. She talks about attending a party with her friend Sally when she was about 40 years old at this cabin that was really a mansion in Aspen that was, you know, like decorated with Ralph Lauren cabin style and owned by a wealthy older man. And she says the whole crowd at the party was older than she was and wealthy. And as Rebecca Solnit and her friend Sally were preparing to leave the party, the host found them and said to her, no, 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 stay a little longer so I can talk to you. And he said, so I hear you've written a couple of books. And she replied that she had written several. And I'll just read the rest of the interaction. Quote, He said, in the way you encourage your friend's seven-year-old to describe flute practice, And what are they about? They were actually about quite a few different things, the six or seven out by then. 
but I began to speak only of the most recent on that summer day in 2003, River of Shadows, Edward Newbridge in the Technological Wild West, my book on the annihilation of space and time and the industrialization of everyday life. He cut me off soon after I mentioned Newbridge. And have you heard about the very important Newbridge book that came out this year? So caught up was I in my assigned role as ingenue that I was perfectly willing to entertain the possibility that another book on the same subject had come out simultaneously and I'd somehow missed it. He was already telling me about the very important book with that smug look I know so well in a man holding forth, eyes fixed on the fuzzy far horizon of his own authority. Here, let me just say that my life is well sprinkled with lovely men, with a long succession of editors who have, since I was young, listened and encouraged and published me, with my infinitely generous younger brother, with splendid friends of whom it could be said, like the clerk in the Canterbury Tales, gladly would he learn and gladly teach. Still, there are these other men too. So, Mr. Very Important was going on smugly about this book I should have known when Sally interrupted him to say, that's her book, or tried to interrupt him anyway, but he just continued on his way. She had to say, that's her book, three or four times before he finally took it in. And then, as if in a 19th century novel, he went ashen. That I was indeed the author of the very important book it turned out he hadn't read, just read about in the New York Times Book Review a few months earlier, so confused the neat categories into which his world was sorted that he was stunned speechless for a moment before he began holding forth again. Being women, we were politely out of earshot before we started laughing, and we've never really stopped. End quote. Okay, so that's the that's the meat of the essay. This it's kind of formed around this event that happened in this conversation. So Malia, what are your thoughts on that? So it's kind of these small some people would call them a microaggression, whatever the word you want to use from, but it, these things just happen and they just kind of build up over time to the point that mm-hmm. like there's so so such a part of common life that sometimes we don't even sit and think with them and like the gravity of what these situations do to you. So I feel like with this sort of situation, it's sadly so common and relatable that I bet in like the scope of her life, this is such a small interaction, which is sad, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. you should never be discounted because of your gender. Agreed. Okay, awesome. What were some other parts for you from the essay or from the whole anthology that kind of stood out to you, Malia? So I think something that I noted in here, which I know you've talked about this in other other podcasts, which is like the term feminist and maybe why it's problematic to contemporary women. And I was mm. thinking about this because I have a neighbor who is German and I asked her, do you view yourself as a feminist? Like the term, do you call yourself that? And her reaction was to say no. And that surprised me because she – the like her her opinions on things are very – what you would figure in line are, are feminist – but for her, she's like, to me, in like Germany or German culture, like the perception of what we see of that does not – it doesn't resonate with me mm-hmm. because it's this idea of like being brash or out there or like topless, like parading around. Um, 
And so it was interesting just to hear her perspective. And I think also one of the things that I noted with you was like looking at a poll of like younger women and how they don't like the term because one of the main factors is this oversight of women of color, trans women, women across the class spectrum, women with disabilities are like focusing specifically on like white middle upper class women. So how this relates to me in the, in the whole anthology is I just felt like over and over again that this was her experience and that is very, very valid. It just felt like it. It also made a lot of judgment calls for other groups, but without really giving them the chance to like have air. It was kind of like her mm-hmm. perspective as an outsider on those things, mm-hmm. as opposed to here is their experience. And and they made me think I had this interaction with a friend who works, her name's Corinne Rice Graycloud, and she works a lot in tribal communities. And one of the things that she works on is trafficking and sexual assault. And it made me think of, she had an instance where there was this public figure who was using her platform to talk about Native women. And there were some people who were upset because they were like, why aren't you turning your voice to women who are on the front lines doing this kind of work all the time? And her reaction to that was, I can practice grace and allow allow the idea that like, even though it would be nice or ideal if she kind of circled in people from these organizations, that it's still giving opportunity to get this out there. And so that, that for me then ties back to my whole experience with this guy, which is like, I'm not a cancel culture kind of person. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a calling in kind of person. So I think the idea is like allowing for grace and being like, it wasn't the best conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so how can we, going forward, like, what can we do rather than being like, that's over, you're canceled, Mm -hmm. the end. But that, so that is something for me, like, just overall in the book that I feel like you can take away reading, like, Rebecca Solnit's perspective and her experiences as a woman, as opposed to, like, generally. And we talked about this too, right, that this book is kind of, at this point, kind of dated, isn't it, Mm -hmm. over a decade Mm -hmm. old? Yeah. Not yet. I think it was 2014. Was it? Okay. Yeah, but still. There's just a lot that's happened, I think, in the women's movement in that time period. For sure. Well, oh, absolutely. And and it is interesting because it does kind of hark back to earlier episodes that we've done where Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, like mind-blowing and world-changing and so important. But the very first thing that we talked about on that episode was that she didn't mention women of color at all in that whole groundbreaking important became almost a Bible of the feminist movement, which is probably why, like you said, I mean, a lot of women of color are not comfortable with the word feminist or, I mean, even your German friend, right? It, It became really associated with a very particular type of second wave, all white, um, heterosexual, upper class women. And so it leaves too many people out. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was, I guess it is kind of surprising though. I just feel like by 2014, that ground had already been covered by many, many voices. So it's kind of surprising. And like you said, disappointing that it it didn't, it wasn't more aware and more inclusive, but I love, I love your approach. I mean, you and I are really aligned on this, the calling in versus calling out. Can I ask you like a specific question for listeners who are thinking, like maybe feeling worried about like, oh, I don't want to make that same mistake, trying to be an ally like this man was that you had this conversation with. 
and and have somebody in the you know in the conversation leave and think like that person totally talked over me like so what would be a solution because you just said like you're all about kind of forging ahead and creating you know positivity in the future and like let's just do better next time so what would you say that guy could have done differently that would have felt more inclusive to you so i can tell you an experience just with me recently with the the black lives matter movement of just like asking friends like what can i do that's tangible like how can mm-hmm. i be of help so i feel like i'm always asking these questions i think that's number 1 is like asking questions rather than just assuming you know i don't know what it's like to be a black American. I'll never know what that's like. But I know what it's like to be a woman of color. I know what it's like to have those experiences. And so what that does is it gives me empathy. So I think mm-hmm. I think that's the starting point is like ask questions. Don't make it someone else's job to like educate you on the issues, but ask questions of like what can I tangibly do to help? And then the other thing too is just always remember like I feel like this is just generally like if it's not your experience do you really have to speak authoritatively about it? Yeah, or can no. you ask questions? Like, don't you think Americans would <laughs> – right. not Americans, like worldwide. I think we would do a lot better if we were willing to ask questions first mm-hmm. and not just to respond. But so we can really just generally be like, I don't understand this. Can you explain to me what this means to you? Mm-hmm. Because so many of these opinions I think are are forged in fear and and that's why I say, like, I want to speak to the person that's like, it's always about color. And and to recognize that, like, I understand your fatigue with it, kind of like hearkening back to your episode with Eric of like, mm-hmm. yeah, I get it. Like, we hear these things all the time and it feels kind of like, oh, do we really does we really have to make it about feminism? But like, that's what it is, like whether or not you're fatigued about it. It's just a reality. So maybe like sit with the uncomfortableness of that and think, what can I do to help the problem and to be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. For sure. Another line that really stuck with me and maybe not in the way that the writer intended was the line, violence doesn't have a race, a class, a religion, or a nationality, but it does have a gender. That's such a powerful statement. And when I read it, I was like, yes, yes. But then I sat with it a little bit and was like, no. <laughs> mm, tell me about that. Interesting. There's just some parts to this that are problematic. And I think that, you know, I don't think this is a trauma contest to debate like who has the most trauma. But I I think there are some oversights into this statement. While it's true that women experience a huge amount of violence at the hands of men, it's important to know, as she does in the book, that most men are killed by other men. So then we have to kind of look at this from a holistic perspective and say, so in regards to violence against women, is this a feature of them being women? Is it a power differential? Is it because men historically are in positions of power in marriages? Is this a biology thing, nature versus versus nurture? I just think there are so many threads that we can follow with this and kind of look at the, the whole picture. And I just felt like some of Solnit's explanations were really moving, but overly simplistic. Uh, I think I said that previously that I just felt like it wanted to be kind of like neatly tied up in an essay form, but because it was in a book, maybe I was expecting too much of it. I was like, no, Mm. talk about this more. I just think that there's there's just a lot to this because the truth is there are many factors that impact why women have so many violent interactions with men. Yes. um, Gender-based violence is, is complicated. Okay. One part for me from 
I guess from the first essay, really, the the one that's titled Men Explain Things to Me, is I do want to talk about the word mansplaining, which we said we were going to get to. So Solnit didn't write that word. It's not, it's not in her essay. It's just that the essay inspired it. And Solnit says she doesn't love the word. And I, I do have mixed feelings about it. I don't, I don't actually use it. I don't think. Now I'm going to have listeners say, yes, you did use it in this episode or something. I don't know. I don't think I use it. I try not to. Certainly after doing this episode, I I, I guess the, the short version of this conversation is that it's not a word that I want to use, but let's get let's get to that a little at a time. That first story that she told, I really definitely could relate to. I've definitely been on the receiving end of very patronizing treatment that I really feel like I would not have been getting if I were a man. For example, there was a fellow student in one of my classes a little while ago who would just constantly correct the women in the class. And there was, I I remember this certain time that the professor asked a question. I had just been listening to NPR in the car on the way to class and had heard the answer to that question that the professor asked. So I answered it knowing the answer. It had been like literally 15 minutes earlier before I parked and walked into class. And this man, and it's not just the content, it's the tone too for me. It wasn't because it wasn't like, oh, really? I heard this other thing. No, it was like, no, that's not right. It's this. And it's so like blindsided me too that I was like, oh, kind of like Solnit says like, wait, maybe I am wrong. And he took the reins away and then he started talking and I just sat there like with this heat in my chest like that. First of all, he's wrong. Also, that was so rude. And why does he think automatically that he knows better than I do? He was just another student in the class. He wasn't a professor. But then I felt like I would seem like a jerk if I raised my hand and was like, actually, you're wrong. Like Mm -hmm. it just felt immature. But then I thought I don't like feeling walked over like that. I just hate being put in that position. And so I I feel like earlier in my life, I probably would have just said nothing and then stewed about it for a while and been, been mad for the rest of the day or whatever. But I just thought, you know what? I'm going to be really polite, but I think he needs to be shown that that's not polite behavior and that I don't accept that kind of behavior. So I actually did raise my hand and just say, actually, you know, I looked it up on my phone discreetly just to make sure I was right. And I was, I just heard it. And so I did, (laughs) I was really nice about it, but I did make a correction and, and just, I mean, and also he had misled the whole class and the professor didn't know because he had asked the question. In any case, I really don't think, well, I did observe with that particular person, he did that more to women than he did to the other men in the class, though he did do it to the other men. Um, but here's the thing. I have totally seen women do this exact behavior too, right? Mm-hmm. Including, I must say, Malia, I was such a know-it-all when I was a kid, like so bad, really kind of insufferable. I was such an explainer. I assumed I knew things. I was legitimately like really bossy. I really was. And which kind of brings me to the word bossy because I think it's I think it's relevant because that's kind of like the gendered word on the girl side. There's like the mansplaining for men and and bossy is uh, is kind of similar. And in fact, Cheryl Sandberg started an initiative specifically to to get people to stop saying that word because the word is almost always only applied to girls. So if like a boy and a girl exhibit identical 
confidence and the ability to direct the action and kind of give assignments to people, the boy is likely to be called a leader, while the girl is likely to be called bossy. And bossy's, as we all know, not a positive term. So I found an article on Psychology Today, which was written by a Wharton professor, Dr. Adam Grant, and I thought this was really interesting. He says, quote, to make sense of bossiness, we need to tease apart two fundamental aspects of social hierarchy that are often lumped together, power and status. Power lies in holding a formal position of authority or controlling important resources. Status involves being respected or admired. And this is continuing this quote. He says, we react very differently when power is exercised by high status and low status people. When people with high status also possess power, we perceive them as dominant, but also warm. We hold them in high regard, so we're willing to follow their commands. When the same commands come from people who lack status, we judge them as dominant and cold. Since they haven't earned our respect, we feel they don't have the right to tell us what to do. When young women get called bossy, it's often because they're trying to exercise power without status. Mm. It's not a problem that they're being dominant. The backlash arises because they're overstepping their perceived status. That's the end of the quote. So this kind of explains why we perceive the same behavior in boys and girls so differently, because in a patriarchal culture, boys have inherent status just based on being boys. And boys are encouraged to be confident and to speak with authority, right? To speak confidently. And in a patriarchal culture, girls have to work much harder to earn that status because their default state is to not have status based on their gender. And boys just get that bump in status just by birthright. And actually, there's a part in Solnit's essay, she says, quote, after my book Wanderlust came out in 2000, I found myself better able to resist being bullied out of my own perceptions and interpretations. On two occasions around that time, I objected to the behavior of a man only to be told that the incidents hadn't happened at all, as I said, that I was subjective, delusional, overwrought, dishonest, in a nutshell, female. Most of my life, I would have doubted myself and backed down. Having public standing as a writer of history helped me stand my ground. But few women get that boost, and billions of women must be out there on this 7 billion person planet being told that they are not reliable witnesses to their own lives. That's the end of her quote. So Solnit, being a woman, she didn't have status, but she gained status because she was a published author. And so I thought that was just a super useful framework to kind of tease out some of the factors that are at play there. And so my last thought about that is just, I feel like if, you know, if, if anybody, regardless of gender, is going to be a leader, there are best practices for leaders, all leaders. And that's to be, you know, a good listener and not arrogantly just jump in and explain things with the assumption that you know more than other people, right? When, when you might not. And to not be an authoritarian dictator because nobody likes that behavior in anyone. So it's much better to listen and encourage others to shine and amplify others' talents, no matter the gender. And it's also super, of course, important for us to check our biases because we all absorb them. And so we need to make sure that we don't excuse the poor behavior in boys or even frame them as strengths, which is one of the tendencies in patriarchy and then also punish girls 
for the, the same behaviors, which are actually just, you know, sometimes we punish girls for even the positive leadership behaviors. So those were my thoughts on that section. What did you what did you think about that, Malia? Either like that section or the word mansplaining. What do you think? So I have a couple of different thoughts. I mean, you you started that last part about like don't don't excuse poor behaviors in boys or even frame them as strengths and punish girls for leadership behaviors. I think that's one of the things that increasingly why when we attach dominator models to gender, it becomes like a cage that we put around mm-hmm. people. Because I see this just with my husband and with my son where these perceptions of like how they should be hurt them just as much as they hurt me and my daughter. Mm -hmm. So I think that even if you're not fully down with this feminist thing or like patriarchy, look at how just these, these biases that we have, how they really limit what people feel like they could or should be doing. Uh, and that's just my plea to people is like, just look at that, even if you're not. And I think that is, that's kind of my whole thing with this whole anthology. There were a lot of things in here that I liked. And then there was a lot of things that I was like, Hmm, I come to a different conclusion on that. And I think that just generally like you can you can agree to certain things and also disagree in the way that they're going about it. You can disagree with like the mode of how we get to the solution. And I think that's how we can better validate these kind of ideas. Same with mansplaining because I I totally relate to the same thing of like men, you know, saying things to me and me feeling like, oh, you're mansplaining to me. But I think the critical thing here is to understand intent, which is this is where it gets tricky, right? Because we we can't really know intent. We're just kind of judging based off of our like best guesses, practice, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm always really cautious at like assuming intent. And I think what comes down to this for me is condescension. Like I think any time that you're speaking with condescension, it's pretty clear what is behind this. And I do, I do think it's worth noting that like, I think that there is a lot of cultural things that relate to this. Like I think generally boys in our wider culture are taught to be tough and strong and, and confident. And I do think that girls are, while that is changing, I still think that girls are often being framed to, you know, be pleasing to not be so assertive that it's off-putting. Like I totally remember that all through like high school and college being like, be assertive, but not too much. Cause I remember when mm-hmm. I was too assertive, it was like too threatening to boys. Like they did. And I actually, <laughs> I remember a guy in college being like, Malia, guys really like it if like you need them and like you don't need men. And I remember being like, you're mm-hmm. dang right. I don't need men. Like I don't <laughs> need a guy to do that for me. And so I mm-hmm. think that this is where like we get that, that overlap. Right. Cause like, it's the same problem. If, if, if my need for you is that I need you to protect me rather than I need you to be a partner with me, then it is true. There is a mismatch there. Men are going to feel like, well, this is what I feel like I, I'm supposed to bring to the table. And if I'm like, well, I don't I don't think that's right, I'm not recognizing that that's like a wider cultural issue. Does that make sense? Yep. 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 It sure does. So yeah. I think that this is where like the term mansplaining is just really problematic generally because I feel like it – while it's like really easy to use and it totally makes sense to me, it I think it too often it just silences the voices of of men who are just speaking up, who we might not even mm-hmm. realize that for them that's a hard thing. Like right. think of all the introverted True. men that like that might be a really a really challenging thing for them to to state their opinion. And so if you're looking at them and you're like, I disagree with you, you're mansplaining me, you're just doing to them what you don't want done to you. So I think condescension here is like really the clear 
key indicator of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you that the term, even if it's true, to be honest, even if like in the class, in the in the example that I just used, that was very clear that that is what was happening, that he did assume that he knew better than me. I, it just was quite clear that it was a gender-based thing, although he did correct other men, that he just kind of was like, it was a very dominator model personality <laughs> that that he kind of, that he was arrogant and that he was um, condescending. But I do tend to also, like you, to, I mean, I <laughs> I do this thing where I, I try to look at everybody, even, especially when they're annoying me, and imagine what they looked like when they were like two or three years old <laughs> and just see the, like, the humanity in them, right? And to see, I loved that you just said that, think of all the introverted boys and men, and we don't know what is going on inside of their heads. And they may be accidentally doing something they, and they don't even realize. And so to just punch him in the face. And I do think the term mansplaining is kind of a punch in the face. So even if it's true, it's not a useful term in calling in, like you said. It's a very, it, it's kind of an aggressive accusatory word. So I don't know that it's a super useful term. Well, why it's can't not we call a use- it the behavior? Why can't we? Right, I, just right. inter- exactly. I just interrupted you. I literally just interrupted you. So you can oh, call that no, woman-splaining. No. <laughs> but I mean, like, why can't we call it the behavior? Why can't I be right. like, you're being condescending? Why why, exactly. why are you being condescending? Can you not say this to right. me in a way that is like, you know, inviting discussion as opposed to like ending it based on your authority? I think right. that's, that's the thing. We're not saying don't you know, don't like call it out. Light some, you know, lavender and be like, it is fine. Whatever <laughs> it is. No, we're like literally just saying like, if you don't want to be discriminated based on your gender, my tools are to not turn around and use those same tools against you. Yes. I love that. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end, Malia. That was a great conversation. I am so, so happy that you were willing to do another text with me and read this and and discuss it today on the episode. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to bother you to come back again. So please, (laughs) please, as many times as you can. We would love it. You're fantastic. Thanks, Malia. 